Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Gail Brandeis. She is the author, most recently, of the essay collection Drawing Breath, Essays on Writing, the Body, and Loss. Earlier books include the memoir The Art of Misdiagnosis, the novel and poems Many Restless Concerns, shortlisted for the Shirley Jackson Award, the poetry collection The Selfless Bliss of the Body, the craft book Fruit Flesh, Seeds of Inspiration for Women Who Write, and the novels The Book of Dead Birds, which won the Penn Bellwether Prize, Self Storage, Delta Girls, and My Life with the Lincolns, chosen as a statewide read in Wisconsin. Gail's essays, poetry, and short fiction have been published in places such as The Guardian, The New York Times, The Washington Post, O, The Rumpus, Salon, and more, and have received numerous honors, including the Columbia Journal Nonfiction Award, a Barbara Mandigo Kelly Peace Poetry Award, Notable Essays in Best American Essays 2016, 2019, and 2020, the QPB Story Magazine Short Story Award, and the 2018 Multi-Genre Maverick Writer Award. She was named a Writer Who Makes a Difference by The Writer Magazine and served as Inlandia Literary Laureate from 2012 to 2014 with a focus on bringing writing workshops to underserved communities. She teaches in the MFA programs at Antioch University and University of Nevada, Reno at Lake Tahoe. Welcome, Gail. Thank you so much, Renita. I'm so delighted to be here. I'm so happy you're here. And goodness gracious, your your biography, and I know that's probably just a sampling. I'm sure that's your short biography. So Wow, there's so much I want to ask you just like right then and there, but I'm going to have to bookmark it because I feel like we should start with the question I ask all my guests, which is to talk first about your new book. So I'm hoping you can share a bit about Drawing Breath. Sure. Um, Drawing Breath is a collection of my essays that have been written over quite a long period of time. The oldest were written over 20 years ago, and then there are more frequent ones as well. And it feels like a bonus book to me in a way because I wrote each of these essays as they came to me, as they burned inside of me without the thought of a book. And it wasn't until the early days of the pandemic when I had a lot of brain fog from an early case of COVID and Mm. it was hard to do much writing. I realized I have this kind of vast archive of essays, maybe I should pull them together. And they started speaking to one another. And it was quite a a really interesting and illuminating and fun and terrifying (laughs) um, process to pull them together and to, to figure out how to make them cohesive. So I'm curious about the terrifying part. And I'm hoping we can dig in there a little bit. Can you talk about that? Sure. I think that this book is, even though my memoir, uh, The Art of Misdiagnosis, felt like the most vulnerable, naked book I had ever published, and it certainly was at the time, because this book has pieces of my writing written over such a large span, I think it holds even more of me. 
And so then it's a very vulnerable feeling putting these really raw, not that they're raw in terms of craft, I've certainly worked on polishing all of them, but these very vulnerable essays (laughs) all together really are like opening a window into my heart and gut and sharing it with the world. And so that's always a little scary, even though it's also always a really gratifying experience too, because hearing from readers who resonate with that vulnerability makes it all worth it. Yeah. And isn't it interesting? I I feel like this comes up a bit, but I've been thinking more about it um, maybe as a memoirist and also maybe from a teaching perspective, there's this, this part of me that's been popping up a little bit lately, which is why do we do it? You know, if it's so non-writers or non-memoirists, for example, might say to us, uh, you know, maybe in, in sort of a cold way, well, then why do it? Why, you know, sort of that critical part of my brain can say to myself, well, what, why put myself through this? Why do these things? We don't have to. Our life doesn't, well, does our life depend on it? It's interesting, right? Like, I wonder what your relationship is to that. Because I know I was talking to Suzanne Roberts a couple of months ago on my podcast. And this idea she talked about, which was uh, she writes things with this deal that she makes with herself that she won't show it to anyone. And then some of them get released into the world. Some haven't. Most do. Can you talk, I'm sort of all around this question, but from all the things that I just said about the idea of sharing or not sharing and how difficult it is and the choices we make, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. And like Suzanne, when I write, I try not to think about anyone ever reading it because I start to get in my own way if that happens. I'll second guess myself and how people will react. And so I I try to write the first drafts for myself just because I have a question burning in my mind or there's an idea that I really want to unpack or something I'm just really curious about that I want to explore. And so I, I just blaze through a first draft as quickly as I can usually just to engage with it myself. And then when I revise, I start to think about potential audience and whether I do want to share this with the Mm. world or not. And edit toward connection. I write for myself and then I edit toward connecting with an audience. And sometimes I do decide, you know, this is just for me. I don't need to put this in the world. But other times I feel like it would be helpful for other people to read what I've written, just to feel less alone. Maybe they're struggling with something similar. I think about especially the experience of suicide loss. Mm -hmm. Um, After my mom took her own life, I was so hungry for other narratives about suicide loss because I didn't know how I was going to get through it. I didn't know how I was going to survive it. And I had this sense that I would need to write about it in order Mm -hmm. to process everything. And I wanted to see how other people had done it, just to know that it was possible because it felt too huge, too scary Mm -hmm. to approach myself. And reading other people's memoirs of suicide loss um, really gave me so much comfort because it helped Mm -hmm. me feel less alone. And it also gave me so much courage in able to just in order to face my own story. And if I can do that for any readers, give comfort and or courage, that means so much. And when I started putting more vulnerable essays out in the world before the memoir came out, 
it was so terrifying. I had always been a really private person who, you know, would cry if I had to talk about my body at all at the doctor's office. I didn't tell my mom that I had started my period until about a year after it started. It was just really hard for me to share intimate things. And Mm -hmm. I never imagined I could be (laughs) someone who would lay myself bare to the world. But it's been... um, it's been so gratifying to hear from readers who let me know that reading my story helped them start to give voice to their own. Suicide loss is shrouded in a lot of shame. It shouldn't be, but there's, there's a great stigma around it. And I've heard from several readers who said that their families told them not to tell anyone that they had lost a loved one to suicide because it would bring shame upon the family. And from my perspective, it's the silence that perpetuates the shame. And when we speak about it, we can start to dismantle that stigma and release that shame. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's something that I, I hope my writing will continue to do is empower people to tell their own stories and to embrace their own stories too without shame. Yeah. Can I ask you if you can pinpoint it? Do you know when you started writing about losing your mom to suicide? It was the essay, Get Me Away From Here, I'm Dying. That was the first thing I wrote about her death. Was it long after or sometimes in our conversations with memoirists, people working on very difficult material? I mean, I would argue that most of us are working on very difficult material, but you know, this idea of when can you start to approach the really traumatic material and how do you get in there and what feels right. And I do think it's different for everyone, but I was wondering how soon after did you personally feel like you could start getting in there? Well, that essay came out in 2012, which was three years after my mom's death. But I had started writing, I would say about a year and a half after her death was when I started to be able to write a little bit. Nothing that I was ready to share or really shape into something for public consumption, um, but just you know, starting to kind of jot down scenes as they came to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful that when my mom took her own life, I somehow had the presence of mind to take notes because I had just given birth. She died when, yeah. I, when my youngest son was one week old. And... I think that maybe some subconscious part of me remembered that birth does a number on our memory and Mm -hmm. grief does a number on our memory. (laughs) And so I had these notes that I had taken during that time. And it took a while to be able to even look at those notes. But Mm. about a year and a half after her death, I started looking at, at those notes, started writing some scenes around the the less charged moments. Mm -hmm. It took years to be able to write about the scene where I learned about her death and a couple of the the harder moments uh, in that experience. But I started writing little things and slowly those built into something bigger. The essay, Get Me Away From Here, I'm Dying, I wasn't quite sure what it was going to turn into, and it ended up surprising me a lot, actually, as I wrote it. 
I, I started writing that essay, which is in two parts. And the first part is the last Christmas I spent with my former in-laws before I left that first marriage. And then the second part is about the last day I saw my mother and learning about her death. And I, I started writing that essay because I, there was a song that tied those two stories together where my older son was playing uh, the Bell and Sebastian song, Get Me Away From Here, I'm Dying, on the guitar during both of those times. And so I was just thinking about how this song tied those moments together mm -hmm. and thought, I'll just see what comes of that. And didn't realize until I wrote the very last sentence of that essay what that essay was really about, mm. which was about losing two mothers, my former mother-in-law through mm. divorce and my mother through her suicide. Mm -hmm. And that is in this collection. It is, yes. Yes, yes. and I actually think we're going to be reading, you're going to be reading from it. So is that, that's, uh, I think that's important to note, and I, I've, I've mentioned it to students myself, which is that when the material is really charged, uh, particularly traumatic or, or new, or just not something you might be ready to touch yet, that writing around it, is, is that something that you offer to your students? Definitely, definitely. Writing around it, I think, can be helpful because I, I certainly tiptoed around the most charged scenes until I was ready. And I think, you know, each of us has to, to find that bell that rings inside our chest or whatever the sensation is within us that helps us know when we're ready. I think it was, for me, just a sense of yeah, I don't know. Maybe a bell ringing is the right term. It just, there was something, or maybe a little box opening inside of my mm -hmm. chest mm -hmm. that helped me realize I was ready. And it was interesting because there were about four scenes that I had been really scared to write. And once that little box opened in me, they all flowed out so quickly. <laughs> Yeah. And I had thought that each one was going to be an excruciating mm -hmm. experience, but they all just kind of plummeted out, I think, because I was finally ready. And then, mm -hmm. of course, it took longer to craft each of those, those scenes into something that I wanted to share with anyone. Mm -hmm. But I, yeah, I just had to be patient and trust that I, I would know when I was ready to write those scenes. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important, too, because I think when we're starting out or even when I lose my way sometimes as a writer, I forget to trust myself and to trust the process that some things I cannot shove into being <laughs> like I cannot like grip it by the shoulders and make it happen. Right. I mean, which is funny because there is this also quality when you're writing of having to, you know, be dogged and, and show up for the page. Right. But I think it's sort of a balance. And I think when I'm a newer writer or when I'm feeling off kilter, when I was a newer writer or when I'm currently, you know, feeling off kilter in my life, it's harder to know, you know, to tap into those, that intuition. Yes, it can be. And it's still hard for me sometimes. I think self-doubt can cloud that trust or cloud that intuition sometimes. And um, yeah, we just have to find our own best tools for pushing past that or quieting that voice and getting down to the deeper voice that knows what it's doing. 
You know, yes. And you've been practicing your craft for decades. And I was wondering, have you come to understand something about writing now that maybe you didn't earlier on? I feel like my young writing self kind of knew everything that needed to lead me forward even now. Um, Although, of course, I'm learning all the time and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, stretching myself all the time. And I really appreciate books and like Craft in the Real World by Matthew Celesis that when it came out just helped me realize how much my whiteness informed certain aspects of my writing and and um, I think just helped me unpack things in a new way so I'm definitely always learning and growing and discovering new things uh, about writing and about craft but I think at the core of it um, all the things I learned as a kid are still with me so uh, I know I touch upon it in the first essay in in this collection portrait of the writer as a young girl how when I was a child like from the time I started writing poems at four years old I knew that writing was where I could be most free most brave that's still true (laughs) I knew that writing could be a source of connection because I I put together this little neighborhood newspaper when I was 10 years old and I was such a shy kid but the newspaper made me brave. It it encouraged me to talk to my neighbors, interview them for articles, or sell subscriptions (laughs) door to door. And because it was in service to the writing, I could do those things that I would be too scared to do otherwise. Mm. So it's, yeah, this way of connecting with folks, pushing me out of my comfort zone. Um, I also learned from my mom that writing could be a way of trying to make a difference in the world. Because when I was a kid, she would write these letters Uh, she called them poison pen letters, Mm -hmm. when she was upset about something. And I saw how these letters went into the world and actually create a change. Like she and some other mothers through the PTA uh, had these letter writing campaigns that she initiated where they were able to get a traffic light in a dangerous intersection near the school where I went to. Just it was because of letters. And they also got guns and ammunition out of a local Kmart. Um, Mm -hmm. by writing letters and Mm -hmm. so I saw as a kid that that words had power and that that words could make a difference in the world in a lot of different ways and I felt how how words made a difference too just in the reading I did and how how different books changed me in different ways Mm -hmm. and then writing was also a place where I could like I could learn so much about myself by journaling but then I could also explore my imagination and create worlds that didn't exist and Mm -hmm. so all of that has been with me since I was a kid and all those things are still so juicy and um, energizing to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like you've been you've really been a writer for so long or maybe forever. Yeah, it's it's really been at the core of me. My memories start when I was four years old and I started writing when I was four. So I, I don't have any memories of not, not writing. Of not writing. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that makes me really intrigued about the different genres in which you write. So, I mean, I feel like you've been on sort of a genre journey. And I'm wondering, what, what are your thoughts on genre? I'm sure people ask you because I've only written two books. I mean, I've written books in two different genres and I get the question about genre and what's the difference so I imagine because you've touched on I think like all the major genres actually at this point um but like how like where are you on that and I don't even know how to ask this question 
because it's such a wide and vast question, but can you, you can choose, it's a grab bag. You can tell me, you know, how you know what genre to write in, where you began and, and where you feel most comfortable now. What have you learned across genres? Anything you want. Yeah, thank you for that question. And yeah, there's so much I could say. <laughs> well, we have some time. So, you know, you know, hit me. Yeah, um, I think my writing self is a lot smarter than my sort of everyday brain and my bumbling through the world self. <laughs> and so, again, I think it's a matter for me of patience and trust and seeing what a piece wants to become. Sometimes I'll start something thinking it's a poem and it turns into a novel. I've also started something thinking it was going to be a book and then it was just an essay <laughs> or um, things of that nature. And it was really just a matter of sitting with the project, listening to the project, playing with different things. And I think play is such an important part of the process of trying stuff, seeing what sticks. And um, of course, you know, each genre has has different craft considerations, but at the core of it for me is a love of language. And I think because the first thing I ever wrote was a poem and I focused on poetry throughout high school and my undergrad years, poetry was my main genre. I think attention to language is, is so important to me no matter what genre I write in and the rhythm of language. And of course, with um, with nonfiction, it's the the you know the the main really task we have is to take a story that's happened and figure out the right container to hold it, mm -hmm. figure out the right way to tell that story, to shape what can feel like chaos into something that is holdable, that is manageable. And I think, of course, that's one of the great gifts of writing is to be able to give shape to chaos. Yes. <laughs> and, and then with fiction, you're, you know, you could be starting from scratch and just figuring out setting, characters, all of those things and, and um, structure. You know, it comes in at some point, but um, you can start off in a more playful, open way than with nonfiction you're working with what is. Although... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There is the, the exciting realm of speculative nonfiction that is super intriguing. And I have a dear friend, Lorraine Herring, who, whose speculative memoir, A Constellation of Ghosts, just blew me away and showed me so many new possibilities for approaching our own stories. In it, her father, who had been dead for 30 years, returns to her as a raven. And so she's telling their story with this image of her father as a raven, and they're able to have these conversations. Um, she's able to hear from her ancestors in the ancestral realm. And it's, it's called a speculative uh, memoir because it's using the material of her life and also using her inner her inner world, her inner way of looking at the world, which can involve dreaming, it can involve connection with metaphysical realms. Um, and in some cases, it's, you know, using the imagination to create that. In other cases, like with Alyssa Washuta, she talks about how, as a member of the Kaolitz Nation, ghosts and other experiences like that, that we would consider paranormal are 
very much just a part of the culture and it's it's not speculative to her it's <laughs> it's her experience so speculative nonfiction can bring in the imagination it can bring in dreams it can bring in um, perhaps things so things like imagining an ancestor's life before you were born or a scene where you weren't present um, it doesn't have to be necessarily something metaphysical it can be just placing ourselves in time and space where we weren't and and using our our own powers of imagination and speculation to flesh that scene out so it it's a really wide open genre just yeah. full of possibility which I think is super exciting me too and the more you talk about it the more you kind of discuss what it was in this case or what you're thinking about the more I realize it's kind of like all writing in that sense because so much of what we're doing is not only what you said which I love is you know creating something out of the chaos or you know making order of some sort um, which I just clumsily paraphrased but I think that it's also what ifing and perhaps just in hearing you explain what this could mean I just feel like all these options open up you know it's just amazing which is what we need which is that play part in writing that I think we forget sometimes when we're plodding along trying to get the facts and trying to make sure we get all the pages and yeah I mean there is work involved in writing but the play is so important so important and so liberatory and I Mm. think yeah any any writer that helps me feel freer I I just adore. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And for me, when I see something that I've never thought of before, and I think I can do that, I can do that. And then you just try something else. It's amazing. So I would love for you to read that section of the essay we talked about. And you can, I don't know if you need to introduce it at all, because it does begin at the beginning uh, of that piece. That's the section. And then you're going to read up until where we talked about. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure if I need to introduce it other than to say that um, this is the part I mentioned earlier uh, that delves into the last Christmas I spent with um, my first husband's family. On Christmas Eve, I arranged the carrot sticks on half of my mother-in-law's narrow scalloped dish, stack pale ribs of celery on the other side. Last time... The phrase echoes through me every few seconds, last time, last time, as I nestle large black olives into the curves around the edge of the dish, drape whole green onions over the top, balance some radishes in between, as I add a couple of ice cubes to keep everything cool and crisp, last time, last time, last time. This has been my job at my mother-in-law's for the last 20 Christmas Eves arranging the crudités into an intricate vegetable Jenga. It always feels like serious work. It always feels like art, like love. Last time. I'm leaving my husband on New Year's Day. The new house is rented, the boxes half packed. The beginning of a trial separation I know in my heart will be permanent. Everyone knows, but no one says a word. Not my husband's mother or sisters or their significant others, not our kids, not my husband, certainly not me. Christmas Eve goes on. My mother-in-law dumps the clear plastic tub of oysters and their brine into a copper pot, along with some cream. She rubs the usual garlic clove along the inside of the salad bowl, 
takes the wide loaves of moist, dense, delicious bread from dough she whips with a spoon rather than kneads from the oven. Last time, last time, last time, last time. My mother-in-law has become more of a mother to me than my own, especially in the 14 years since my daughter's birth, when my mom's delusional disorder first surfaced. I watch her pour a glass of white wine, her jet black Louise Brooks hair falling forward into her face, and love her so fiercely, so desperately, my chest aches. I'd waited so long to ask for a separation, partly because I didn't want to separate from her. Last time. She make, usually makes a pot of Christmas borscht to accommodate me, her Ukrainian Jewish vegetarian daughter-in-law, but this year she's made split pea. It bubbles and snaps on the stove next to the oyster stew. I thought I'd try something new, she says, but I imagine it's her way of starting to pull away from me, to loosen me from her heart. After dinner, last time, and buttery jam-filled cookies, last time, and the distributing of presents under the tinsel-dripping tree, last time, the instruments come out. My husband's family is a musical one. Their gatherings often involve guitars and piano, sometimes fiddle and accordion. The usual carols are played, along with some bluegrass songs that give them a chance to harmonize. Then the grown-ups retreat to the kitchen to clean up, and my 17-year-old son starts to strum Belle and Sebastian. I'm a bit embarrassed to admit I had never heard of Belle and Sebastian until I saw the movie High Fidelity, and then I thought they were a made-up band, a fictional excuse for Jack Black to lose his shit. It wasn't until my kids became fans that I realized they were an actual group. If it weren't for my kids, I'd probably still be listening to Prince and the Talking Heads on a nearly exclusive basis. I helped wash the gold-trimmed stemware my mother-in-law inherited from her mother, almost the exact same set my mom inherited from hers. I find myself violently gripping each goblet, and I'm not sure if it's because I don't want to let them go or because I want to crush them with my hands. My son launches in to get me away from here I'm dying. The song sounds so peppy, but the lyrics slay me, even though I don't catch most of them, just the title phrase and you're so naive and... I always cried endings. That's enough. I set down the glass, tear off my yellow rubber gloves, run to my mother-in-law's TV room and wail. Deep subterranean sounds that rip through me and seem to last for hours. No one comes in to check on me. No one asks if I'm okay after I finally emerge embarrassed, my eyes completely red. They all love me, but not enough to forgive what I'm about to do. When we're walking to the car, though, my husband's older sister pulls me aside and gestures to her leopard print coat. I bought this for myself when I knew I had to leave my ex, she says, then wraps her arms around me. I start to cry all over again, tears matting the fake fur. I always cry at endings. Thank you. I don't even know what to say. It's just um, beautiful to hear you read it. And, and it is only part of the essay. And that is from Drawing Breath. And um, I really appreciate that you were able to tell me earlier on in our talk about um, how you connected these two and how you knew that they had to do with your mother. Because the next part of the essay begins your mother more, right? And so, um, and I also love the repetition, the leaning into the repetition of last time. And I just, it, it, I just love the way this sings of nonfiction, right? Like this is just, this is so much of what you can do with nonfiction. You know, you 
have integrated a song and you've talked about the the mothers and you're, you're using repetition and then you've got the sensory details and the really physical grounding in here and the emotional life. So anyway, I'm going to stop fawning all over your essay, but I really appreciate it. And I know our time is sort of starting to wind down, but there's this one brief section from um, very early on in the book um, that I had picked out that I was hoping you could read about the color and, and you know, exhaling. And I, I was hoping you could read that, maybe intro it if you want, and then just share a little bit about your thoughts on writing and breathing and lungs and vapor. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. So this little section, um, it comes from the title essay, Drawing Breath. And it's about um, my kids using these things called blow pens, which were these pens that you blew through. And it was like an airbrush thing, but you use your mouth and it blows um, color onto the page. So um, here's the little excerpt. I watch them blow in color, blow and write their names. And I think this is what writing is, finding a way to let our breath live on the page, finding a way to tint each exhale so the colors that live inside us can find their way out into the world, dragging our fingers through the vapor of our lungs and seeing what shapes we leave behind. And that last image comes from when I was a kid, which opens the, the essay, Breathing on the Window of the Car as we were driving and, and drawing, writing on the glass. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and so this is, I mean, I feel like this really set me up as a reader to understand and kind of see what your perspective is, at least in the beginning, about the importance of our words. And I mean, it's right here, this idea of, well, I mean, can you talk a little bit about it you yeah, know and, yeah. yeah this this essay is actually one of the older ones in the book I wrote it in the year 2000 it was part of my um, MFA experience I had to write a critical paper on whatever you know we, we got to choose the subject matter and I was really fascinated with the connection between writing and breath I had been a dancer um, dance and writing have been my my two main arts throughout my life and as an undergrad, my degree was in poetry and movement as arts of expression, meditation, and healing. And I found that the body and the breath was where those two arts intersected. And I love how breath, it, it's this nexus between body and mind. It can be unconscious and conscious. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the act of breathing is so similar to the act of writing in that when we inhale, we take the world into our bodies, and when we exhale, we give ourselves back to the world. And that's, that's just like writing. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact quote from Yorel Rukeyser that I quoted at the beginning. I think it's breathe in experience, breathe out poetry. <laughs> and I think that that's, that's so much what writing is all about, is, is taking the world in with our senses, our minds, our hearts, and then giving ourselves back to the world as we write. And mm -hmm. so that interchange, that back and forth um, between body and world just felt so potent to me. And mm -hmm. I wanted to explore it. And so I, I decided, because it had to be a research paper, I divided it into inhales and exhales, where the inhales were looking inward at my own experience and the exhales were looking out at what's been written about the connection between breath and writing mm -hmm. by other smarter folks than me. 
<laughs> you know, well, I also want to point out, you mentioned dance and body and movement, which I, I read in this book as well, but also you've talked about a little bit in the in this conversation. And it is so funny how we contradict ourselves or rather how we are so many things at once because you talk about how shy you were and how self-conscious at the doctor. And you talk about this in the book too. But then you're like doing these things with your body in the world as well. And it's just so funny because, for example, like I – I can be shy and of course nobody believes that or you know I I like can say I don't love to talk and no one who knows me really well believes that but you know like there are these two things these two three four all these things in us and that's what also writing is so fun uh to explore with right like it's amazing all the contradictions we have Yes, so much. And I think it's art that has always been so freeing for me. Whereas as a quiet kid, I would be this quiet kid, but then I could, you know, get on stage and (laughs) and dance and feel really powerful on the stage and then get off the stage and feel really shy again. Yeah, yeah. It's so funny. Um, So, okay. So what memoirs have been very helpful to you in your own work or ones that you would really like to share right now? Oh, my goodness. There are so many. Um, The one that I mentioned of Lorraine Herring's uh, A Constellation of Ghosts, just so mind blowing. Um, Another speculative memoir. It's it says a novel on the cover, but Errol Gore will will say it's a speculative memoir. Is We Were Witches, which I just adore. Um, in terms of books that were most helpful for me when I wrote my own memoir, I, I would say this is a collection of essays. But um, Audre Lorde's Sister Outsider was really important to me, and the phrase "Your silence will not protect you" is one I kept returning to as I wrote. And it really helped me a lot. I would say also Joan Workersham's The Suicide Index was really helpful for me in terms of showing ways of using form Mm -hmm. and also ways of being able to give voice to suicide loss. Mm -hmm. That was super helpful. So is there any last advice you'd like to leave listeners with? I would say, you know, just... Going back to Audre Lorde, um, in the same essay, or I guess it was a lecture she had given where she uses the phrase, your silence will not protect you. She talks about mortality as a source of motivation. And for me, that that's really my greatest motivation is remembering that my time on this earth is limited and I just want to make the best use of it I can. So I think for those who are feeling you know, scared to get to their deepest, truest writing, think about what it is you want to write before you die. And that I think can help you get to your, your deepest, most meaningful work. And I would also say embrace your weirdity, which is a word that my dad coined. <laughs> I mentioned it in the last essay of the book and I love the word so much. It's just, It's a word that describes our own inherent weirdness. And I think that often the things that make us unique, we're sometimes teased about when we're young, but those things that make us unique are the things that will make our writing the most us and the most alive. And and so lean into that, lean into your weirdity. Uh, Mm -hmm. Lean into your weirdity and your mortality and you you will write amazing stuff. Thank you. Um, And where can people find you? 
I'm at www.gailbrandeyes.com. Uh, you can contact me there. Um, just also look up my name on, on all the social medias, Twitter, <laughs> Facebook, Instagram, and you'll find me there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gail. This was just wonderful, and I learned a lot. Thank you for being my guest. Oh, thank you. It was such a pleasure for me. I'm so, so grateful for this conversation. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.